Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes together. All right, chapter 1, Ecclesiastes 1, together. As you're doing so, I'll just give you the title of today's message, just to get you excited about it. It's called Hevel, an Experiment in Despair. Yeah, a lot of excitement, right? Hevel, an Experiment in Despair. Uh, We're going to be going into our third week here uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm more excited than ever uh, to be studying together and working this through. Last week, I made the charge and encouraged you to sit down, to separate some time for yourselves, and read the entire book of Ecclesiastes in one sitting. If you didn't, that's okay. I just want you to hear it again. I'm going to call to you out again. Sit down this week, spend some time that's uninterrupted, and read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm just telling you, it is the way that God gives us his grace. So spend the time in his word. And also, as we continue together, we grow both in understanding and also in holiness and joy as we watch him open up the text to us. So, again, it's not about guilt. It's not about homework. It is about the grace of God in our lives. So I want you to set aside time. Let me know if you did it or not. It'll take you maybe 30, 45 minutes. I decided on one time this week I would time it. I did it out loud. It took me 34 minutes. I think you can set aside that time to soak in God's word. Uh, I want to encourage you also with a couple other things. Um, I don't always post on Realm. But when I do, I prefer to post a sermon worksheet uh, that covers uh, what's happened the previous day from our sermon stuff. Some of you know what's going on here. Uh, let me encourage you to read through Ecclesiastes and then work through it. Take that sheet. It's one sheet. It's simple. Take that sheet and read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Read it for understanding and growth. Those, those questions are meant to help us grow. Some of you use it for your community groups, and that's wonderful. That is one way to encourage. If you don't have a good way of getting in God's word, do that. The other, I'll just make a plug, too, for what John and Wendy have been crusaders about, which is just this simple reading challenge called To the Word. It is a way for us to soak in the word over and over Probably one of the biggest things that I love about this is that it allows us to do it together. So again, and John made this point before, that if you miss a day, get back on the next day so that we can have something together to say, what did you read in John 4 today? I said, I did this. Uh, oh yeah, I kind of read part of that too. Again, it will encourage us in the Word. There's certainly other ways. I'd encourage you together, brothers and sisters, get in the Word. These are just some of the simple ways. Okay, let's take a look at Ecclesiastes 1. We're going to begin in verse 12 together. This morning I'm going to start there, and then we're going to make it all the way through. This is true. We're going to make it all the way to the end of chapter 2. So buckle your seatbelts. We're in for a long day. Ecclesiastes 1. Let me go ahead and read for us verse 12 through 226. Ecclesiastes 1, 12. This is God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said to laughter, it is mad. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see that was, what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during his few days of his life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what? What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For, if the, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I told under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. 
and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and the striving after wind. Let's pray together. Father, your word is eternal. It is immense. And it tells us the truth. We thank you for your servant, Kohelet, who has proclaimed the truth to us, who has gone down these avenues so that we might learn properly from them, so that we would cry out with him, hevel, emptiness, mere breath is all that we see. Lord, we ask this morning, though, that you'd help us see clearly that that is not the end of the story. Would you help us to know you and you alone are the key to knowing that there is meaning and joy in life. We pray for your great love to spread not only in this room, but in back rooms where our children are hearing the gospel, across the city where others are hearing the gospel preached at churches who love you and proclaim Christ, across the world throughout other continents and the Riau Malayu and Indonesia. We ask that your word would go forward, that you would be working to call many to yourself. We pray for your your spirit to work in us, that we would be encouraged in the word, and that you give us your grace. We sit under it with glad and expectant hearts. Delight us with your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What would you do if you randomly came into, someone gave it to you, no strings attached, someone randomly gave you $10 million? I kind of started like the thought experiment of doing $1 million, but I realized that may not, in our day and age, last that long. So what if someone randomly gave you $10 million? What would you do with $10 million? I mean, some kids at lunch kind of sit around and talk about this very thing. What would you do with a million dollars? What would you do with $10 million? If something like this happened to us, I think we'd probably be able to uh, pretty quickly see that, you know, we uh, would like to change maybe our employment some way. We might go after some of the things that we weren't able to get before. Uh, we'd probably like to maybe see the world and do a few things that we just haven't been able to because we just don't have the resources. And of course, I assume that most of you then would take the rest and give it to Cornerstone Bible Church. So we, we were so thankful for regular hearts of giving. Uh, maybe not. What would you do with $10 million? If something like this happened, I think that we'd probably be able to very quickly see what kind of stuff our heart really wants, what our heart really treasures, what we really like and what it loves and wants. Maybe again, traveling the world, maybe buying a beach house or for some of us want to buy a big farm or a ranch out west. Maybe some would start businesses. Uh, maybe you would go after uh, like a trip to space. I don't know what would be the thing that would fulfill your desires, but I do know that having $10 million will certainly change your life situation and allow you to do some of the things that you want to do. Last week, as one of the illustrations, we talked about F.W. Woolworth, excuse me, a successful entrepreneur who died at the age of 66 back in 1919. And when he died, he was worth, in that day, $76.5 million. That's about $1.2 billion in 2021 money. 
Now, that's pretty good. Uh, I asked you about $10 million, but what about $1.2 billion? What would you do with that? That's a whole different story. But let's take one more step. Uh, there aren't, these aren't exact numbers, obviously, but go with me here. How about receiving a tribute each year of $40 billion in gold, and along with all the territories that you've amassed, and the exotic treasures and gems, and heavy taxation from your people, we're talking about a fortune that would be roughly $2.2 trillion in today's money. I talked about $10 million, and then $1.2 We're talking about $2.2 trillion. And by the way, you're a king. You kind of get stuff done. And by the way, you also have been gifted by God with wisdom, then you're more wise than anyone who's ever been on the planet before. That's the question. What would you do then? A little bit different scenario. If you're like this person, you would have no earthly limitations. Nothing would stop you, right? You could literally pursue anything to the nth degree that's under the sun. Kohelet, our author here, never naming himself as Solomon, we talked about this in the weeks to come here before, sorry, uh, puts on the Solomon persona in these first two chapters. He does this so that we might see and, can I say this way, use endless resources, endless opportunity, endless power, and endless wisdom for one goal. And that goal is to find out the meaning of life to find out how to gain something that matters in our lifetime. For time's sake, I will simply point out that once we get through chapter 2, we don't read much in the way of this Solomon-type language. It's almost like Kohelet drops the, the king of Israel bit as he's through for this passage right now. By picking up this Solomon persona in chapter 1, um, we see then that he is back in verse 1 and then on here in this little spot, we see that he's extensively showing us what it would be if we were to take on all of the resources, all of the power, and all of the wisdom of Solomon. Again, he's not plagiarizing. He's not seeking to deceive us. This is a common way that a writer would put on this persona and play this out. It happens in the Bible as well. He does this for the sake of utility because you and I will probably never be kings. Probably you and I will never amass great wealth in this way. And probably you and I will not ever be trumping Solomon as the wisest person in the world. It's one thing then, as we look at this, to kind of come from our own perspective. But what Kohelet is doing is allowing us to gain perspective from this person, this persona of Solomon. He wants us to chase after gain in this life through real experiment. That's why I said this is an experiment in despair, without being hindered by ignorance or poverty or any other limiting earthly factors. In the opening verses then of Ecclesiastes, what we touched on last week, we found a poem, poetry of Hevel. This idea of trying to start our book off in a way that actually explained it, kind of wrapped it up nicely. But now he turns from poetry to proof. He's ready to actually tell us what he is going to have. Hey, here's the evidence. Here's the data. This is what really happened in real life. I gave you the poetry, but I'm going to tell you now what I actually did. In verses 12 through 18 in chapter 1 here, we get an introduction into what he is about to do. In these verses, he gives us his credentials, kind of like how he fits the bill as the wisest man in the world. Look at verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. 
I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This man uh, can take us to the center of our real struggle in this question about meaning of life. As we said before, he has no earthly limitations. And he tells us that he's not messing around here in the ivory tower. He's got boots on the ground. He's going out to do this. He is, in a sense, the kingly resource to explain all of what everyone else would like to explain. He gets to do it. He goes and does this, and look what he says, by wisdom. He does this with all the faculties that God has given to him, all that is done under heaven. Now, that phrase is a little different from what we've seen before. You see that? Under heaven. If you've been around for the last two weeks, you know I pointed out the phrase, under the sun. So there is the majority of the time we're going to see him talk about under the heaven, I mean, under the sun, but he does once in a while point out what is under heaven. It's, it's a little bit different. He uses this term to describe everything in the universe in general. And what I, what, if you can kind of think about this way then, under heaven means everything in the universe that can possibly be known, but under the sun, as we talked about before, is understanding life from a secular perspective one that does not have God in it. So those are the two ideas here. But he's trying to say, big picture, all the stuff in the whole universe is what I'm attempting to understand. And he tells us that he has made it his ambition to take this great wisdom and apply all his efforts to understand what's done in the whole universe. And his preliminary report to this, what we're looking at, it isn't good. He's not like deceiving us. He's not like, this is going to be really good. He tells us right up front, kind of like, so we are warned about what we're setting out to do here. As he sees this, he says that life is in an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's quite a statement for two reasons. I want you to see this. He's saying that this business of working and saving and trying to get some meaning in life is an unhappy venture, business. We'll see that he'll expand this in the next verse. But there's another thing that I want you to see here. We haven't seen any attention given to God until this point. Do you see this here? There's an incredible little ray of light. It's like a hint of what's to come. You may not see it through all the darkness and negativity of Kohelet, but it's the fact that he attributes this living cycle that's under the heaven to God. Whether we like it or not, it is God who is in control of all this. So I just want you, as a reader, don't miss this little breadcrumb. We're going to come back to it and see how it kind of informs us about Kohelet and his perspective on life. But don't miss this. Even as he's talking about how difficult and unhappy the business is of living, he is showing that it is given by God. This is important for us. Now look at verse 14 and 15. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I mean, this man has literally seen everything that is done from the perspective of mankind without God. And with all this, he concludes, you can't do anything about it. There's nothing that you and I can do to change what God has already put in place. He's saying, you don't have control over this life the way that you and I might think we do. I mean, we're Americans. If there's anything we can do, it's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and change our scenario. I mean, think about all the immigrant stories, right? We can do this. Or the, I mean, man, there's famous slogans like, yes, we can. 
This idea that it is within our power to change what comes after us. But Kohelet is showing us, you ultimately can't make a difference. It's already set. He's letting us know that he's about to tell us a story of despair and that our efforts are worthless in the end. This is not an encouraging way to go on, but he goes on. He moves on in verse 16 to reassure us that he knows what he's talking about, particularly when it comes to wisdom, but that even wisdom itself comes up short. This is incredible because we know how important wisdom is, especially as a wisdom speaker. He's going to show us that it even comes up short. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, it wasn't like I thought it was going to be. I thought I could figure this out and get somewhere in all of this. I knew that wisdom was crucial for a living. I mean, he knows. He understands how important wisdom is. But as he takes it up, he's trying to live properly, he realizes he plunges himself into this knowledge or this experience and understanding that still it is empty. And he kind of gives us, if I can say it this way, a prospectus a plan for what he is about to do as he's trying to get this pursuit of wisdom accomplished, as he's trying to understand the meaning of life. He's going to take his wisdom and use it to understand, or try to understand, ultimate wisdom. Like, past farther than anyone else has ever done before him and anyone would come after him. He wants to make sure that he gets it. We'll see what he means in a moment, but for now, it's enough for us to understand that he is looking for madness and folly. He's trying to understand all that anything could possibly tell him about the meaning of life. He's trying to get beneath the surface to use any and every opportunity to find the secret of gaining something meaningful in this life. But again, he warns us, it didn't work. Uh, I was just striving after win. Nothing came of it. Not that he didn't experience and learn a lot of good stuff, but that when a person goes down this road, when they experience wisdom and knowledge, it actually hurts. That's what he says here. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Yeah, I might have been successful in my quest for understanding things, but does it really matter if it only brings me vexation and sorrow, greater trouble on my inside and outside? This is Kohelet's introduction to his pursuit. So we're convinced by this time that he's abundantly qualified to talk about these things, right? We understand who he is and the persona he's taking on, and he's ready to kind of jump into this. So let's hear what he has to say. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He begins with the pursuit of joy, or you can see, as the ESV says, pleasure. It's the exact same word. Joy would be a better translation because it actually helps us see how he's going to show this later on in verse 26 but we'll go with pleasure for now. Uh, you'll see why this is important, though. Let's pick up in verse 1. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure or joy. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure or joy, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, 
and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. Now, when you guys first come to this passage, just probably like I did, I assumed right away that he's actually talking about indulgence or escapism or hedonism in some way. That seems to be what he's talking about. I thought he was pursuing that life which just got all his pleasure up and got him all the feels. I mean, you and I know this path already, a path of escaping reality and the work schedule and all the different struggles in life to just feel different for a while. Again, when I first came to this, that's what I thought he was going to do. But it seems as though he's not so worried about the immediate gratification. That's like, a, that's like an easy one that we almost like cheap thrills, right? That's not what he's doing here. I'm sure that he did have cheap thrills, don't get me wrong. But that's not his attempt here. He is trying to understand something. He's getting all this stuff that makes uh, you know, him, 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 him get somewhere with this. On its face, we can understand that that kind of living is not wise. We understand that. We can understand that to live in this manner is to stop looking for meaning and to start really grabbing a hold of anything that just makes us feel good. That's not what Kohelet is trying to do here. This man wasn't doing that. He was experimenting with joy as a way to understand the depth and meaning of real life. He's trying to understand and experimenting with joy as a way to seek an end, to really get there, to figure it out. He's trying to use us to understand what life is actually about. This is more than, than simple indulgence. One scholar says, it is a deliberate flight from rationality to get at some secret of life to which reason may be blocking the way. I want to explore it all, all these different things so I can understand and get to the point that really I understand the meaning of life. This idea of madness and folly, as some have said, is the, the cult of the irrational. I mean, if you look in our culture, there's, there's art that's like this, there's entertainment that's like this, there's different societies. We're talking about the use of dark comedy, even alcohol and drugs, all with the intention of getting past the common understanding of the world and getting past what is reasonable and getting past the, to the absurd and the odd and the things that aren't held back by the common sense street wisdom that we all hold dear. Trying to say, is there something past reasonableness? Something that's past rationality? In the pursuit of madness and folly, this enjoyment, are a serious attempt at understanding the world. He tells us this in verse 3. Just, did you notice that? He says, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. That's not true when you're just trying to live it up for self-gratification and hedonism. No, no, no. His heart is still guiding him with wisdom. And after concluding that seeking joy through madness and folly is also hevel, he moves on to the creative arts, to science, and to labor. This is where we kind of like are amazed by what he was able to do, right? Agriculture and music and sexual pleasure and all these things that he could gain in a reasonable and rational world. Take a look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces." 
I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Yowza, he got a lot of stuff going on. He was able to accomplish a lot of stuff. He had quite an array of his accomplishments, possessions, and the things that he could claim that he did. Now, just for a minute, consider what we just read, though. Consider what he is pointing out. He just built an incredible dwelling place, an immense garden filled with all kinds of fruit trees, watering systems, people, people who were born to those people, animals in numbers beyond compare, silver and gold, precious treasures. They seem to almost flow out of this land. Music and sex and everything wonderful about the world was in this place. Does that sound familiar, like a a place that we might long for from the opening chapters of Genesis? Beyond each part of this description being amazing in itself, I think this is a purposeful representation or presentation of this man's attempt to bring back some sort of Garden of Eden, a place of perfection and utopia, abundance. And guess what? He did it. He really did it. He did the experiment. He was able to put it all out there. But there's only one major thing missing, right? The major thing? God himself? He goes on in verse 9. Take a look. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. I mean, come on. He, he finally gives us a description of life that is gain. Remember we talked about this last week? We're looking for what we gain under the sun. I mean, he just listed an enormous description of what is gain. He's been asking this question the whole time. He keeps on using language of possession, of building, of acquiring, surpassing, owning, having, gathering. And here in verse 10, look, he even calls it reward. I mean, that's, that's, that's the language we're looking for. Like he, he, he found it. He got the gain. He's made it, right? Look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Whoa. When he considers what happened, all of that immense wealth and accomplishment and the putting to use of his creative arts, he calls it Hevel. I mean, he just showed us an incredible picture. All that he had gained, all that he had done, some real substance here. But upon consideration, he gives us the wisest conclusion that he can right now. It's all mere breath. It's all hevel. It's all vanishing away. I can't hold on to it. It's all hevel. So since he sees that this stuff is all vanishing, that there's no true gain in any of this stuff, he turns back to philosophy to try to find the answer for what's going on here. Look at verse 12. So I turned to consider... Wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now stop there. He, he recognizes, yes, wisdom is certainly better than being a foolish person. 
He gets it. I mean, wisdom is important. Thinking about life, gaining experience and then uh, discernment and, and wisdom from other people helps you just as it helps someone who actually has eyes to be able to walk and be able to be uh, walking around and not bumping into everything. Whereas someone who cannot see, uh, it's a tough time for them to walk, but they certainly don't have the same experience as one who has eyes. Uh, walking around without eyes is difficult, as you understand. Thus, wisdom is definitely better than being a fool. Let's continue in verse 14. And yet I perceive, this is after talking about wisdom, how being such a great thing it is, that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. Yes, I get it, guys. Wisdom is better than folly, for sure. I can tell you that. I can tell you right here. We all know that it's better. It's better to have your eyes open and walk on this earth. That's good. The problem is the person who has eyes dies just like the person who doesn't have eyes. What in the world did it gain them? The fool and the wise men died just the same. This is outrageous to him. He's worked so hard at this. If it's true, why has he been so devoted his whole life to pursuing wisdom and understanding what's going on? And with him, we declare, Hevel, mere breath. Verse 16 reveals something that needs to be mentioned. Notice that this man is incredulous that there is nothing long-lasting, nothing enduring about this life, nothing, if I can say, eternal. But why? Why would he care about this? Why is he so enraged about this? Well, we're going to see as we get to this, there's a hint here of God's work again that we're going to see explicitly in 311. It's probably one of the verses that you know that God has put eternity or enduringness, same word, in our hearts. By verse 17, we are recounting the pain that he has talked about. All that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And in verse 18, he introduces one more thing about life that frustrates him past no end. Listen to 18 through 21. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about. I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Life doesn't only end in death. It gets worse than that. All the stuff that you did and tried to be some enduring legacy might be given over to a foolish heir who squanders every single bit of it. And guess what? There's just no telling whether the person that's coming after you will be wise or foolish. You might work to get educated and use that educated to, to, to build wealth and build up your company and scrimp and save and keep your nose to the grindstone to do good work and save your possessions and resources and build and build and build. But in the end, everybody dies. Everybody dies. And in the end, 
you don't know where your massive fortune is going to go. Will it end up in the hands of a wise son? Or like we saw last week, that poor little rich girl, Barbara Hutton, who received roughly $50 million, and by the end of her lifetime, it was gone. You have no idea what's going to happen. To all of this, he returns to the question we find in chapter 1, verse 3, last week. But this time, he adds a right answer here for us right away. Verse 22 says this, What has a man, or gets a man, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. I mean, you can hear the echoes of his original statement back in 118. What is life but sorrow and vexation for the one that tries to live by knowledge and wisdom? I told you it was bad. I told you that wisdom brought vexation. I told you that increased knowledge brought increased sorrow. Here's the evidence. I've got to all of it. And not only that, he can't even get a decent night's sleep because he's considering how to somehow hold on to all of his gain. He's anxious. He has no way to keep and rest himself. This is heaven. What is a person to do if this is the end of all the experimentation in finding meaningful gain in this life? And don't say, well, maybe if I was a better person, I had more money or I, was, I had more control. No, no, no. We're talking about the Solomon persona here who had all of it. It seems as though we are left to decide what in the world we want to do with our life then since none of it matters at all. It's up to you, right? Do what you want to do. Go out and find your own truth, find your own happiness. Whatever makes you happy, just do that. I told you before that Kohelet is an evangelist, kind of like a missionary. Um, Someone who is bringing light to a very dark world. But he's also a brilliant apologist. If you know what I mean by an apologist, one who's defending the truth of the gospel or of the truth of God. Someone who defends God's word and his message. If you know much about apologetics, you know there are two major schools of thought, right? You've got the evidentialists and you've got the presuppositionalists. Now, that only makes sense to maybe a few of you. That's fine. My point is it's a perspective on how we get there. Taking what the world shows us and saying, look, see all the world shows us, look at the evidence here, and we can come to a spot where we understand there must be a God. A presuppositionalist starts with, hey, I'll start you off on the right road. God. He's like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the world. We usually think of these two, but um, Kohelet is both. He does both of these things. It's amazing. Kohelet has just proven to us that under the sun, in the evidence, right, that there is no meaning in life. That you can take all the money and power and wisdom and experience and try to understand what it's all about. And in the end, when you take all that evidence, the conclusion is that everything must be pointless. It doesn't matter. The evidence points to hevel. Vanity, absurdness. There's nothing to gain. But right here, at this very point, Kohelet drops his presupposition. He drops wisdom on us. The truth. He shows us that there is something outside of the wisdom of earth. Verses 24 and 26 through 26, we have hope. We have a God-centered response to all of this. 
we have a, a bigger story that makes us think that if we read verse 24 alone, that we should just be happy with the little bits and joy that we can, simple pleasures of life, food, drink, and work. But there's more to it than that here. We have a God-centered response, a much bigger thing that's telling us what's going on truly under the sun. Look at verse 24. It says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, if you simply stopped there, uh, you'd think then that even if you could have lived the life of Solomon, it would be better to just live a simple life enjoying the small things. And, And for sure, I mean, this is certainly a philosophy that actually swirls around us within our own culture. I mean, simplicity brings joy. Um, you know, downsize your life, find happiness, um, you know, in the simple joys of eating and gathering and working the land and enjoying the small, simple things. And I like that. But there's a major problem. The same can be done by believers and unbelievers. Is that really what life is all about? The simple joys of life? Like, like, that, like, like just eating and drinking, that's, that's what it's about? Finding joy in your toil somehow, somehow doing this? Is that really all it's about? If that's what Kohela is saying, it doesn't seem like we've got much of a Christian message to preach from this text. But it isn't the end of what he said either. Um, neither is it what he is exactly saying in verse 24. Let me give you a little more literal or wooden translation of that sentence. There is not a good in man to eat, to drink, to find good in toil. Now, that's hard to understand. I understand that. What's happening in our ESV text is they're putting in a contrastive idea. It's better than. That's actually not here. It's a decent way to supply how it's difficult to understand, but I think there's a better rendering here that we can understand. Is it possible, and I believe right, according to what the text says, that he is saying that mankind doesn't have it in himself to find good in this life? Not his eating, not his drinking, not his work. Ultimately, those things cannot bring him satisfaction. Seems to be right along with all that he's told us so far. And this is why he continues in verse 24 and 25. Look at the second half. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Wait, wait, wait. You mean that the quest for meaning, for joy, for gain in this life cannot be to someone unless they have been given it by God? That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that the grounds, uh, this, this gets grounded in the next statement. Notice as, as we open up verse 26, he uses the word for. His point is here. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Now, do you understand here, he's using very distinctive language. I mean, like this deciding between one and another. Kohelet is actually bringing up right here the idea of someone making a judgment about people. He's talking about this in a way that one person is different than another. Remember that he is in control, that he has designed us with eternity or longing for endurance in our hearts, that God is the sovereign one. And here he brings us to realize that one must believe divine revelation. That's why I said he's both an evidentialist, but now he's going to drop the presupposition, the truth, the revealed word of God, that God is, and that we are subject to him alone. 
He's giving us what the Bible in other places called true wisdom. We understand this from, this, from, the, from the, uh, the Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. He's advocating that we actually please God. He says it right here, that we fear him, that we live in such a way that takes everything that he has told us as true and live in light, after, uh, uh, in light of what that is and in true joyful obedience. He's saying then that this person, the one who pleases God, will actually at the end gain. He's not like the rest where just collecting and gathering only to give it away, but rather there will be gain. These people will get gifts from God. They get wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now that's interesting, right? I want you to look back at verse 18 of chapter 1 and look what he was looking for. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with joy, pleasure, enjoy yourself. The very things that he was after and using, God says to the one who fears or pleases him, these are given as gifts, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. These are the gifts that help us enjoy food and drink and our toil here under the sun. When we get wisdom, knowledge, and joy, we can understand that this life is only temporary, is only fleeting, and is in fact hevel. We understand that. As I was trying to think about this, I was, I was really trying to think about a metaphor that would be helpful or a good illustration, but I'm, I'm going to try my best to put this together. It's a little different. I think we could say that there is a divine magic in this world, in our experience. It begins with the revelation of God's Word, but the Bible, telling us about reality, like what is actually true. But most in the world don't believe this magic book, and they certainly don't believe that someone who's outside of their time and space and uh, able to look at them and see them exists. And so to listen to this book and you know, bring it and, and follow it or do anything like that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would they do that? I can see what's going on with my own eyes and hear what's going on with my ears. I, I, I don't need to follow this book, and I certainly don't need any of your divine magic. And we trust the maker, though, who empowers us and shows this truth. And we trust this and take this magic book seriously. When we believe it, we trust the maker of the book. It's like putting on, in a sense, a new set of glasses in which now we look at the world in a completely new way. It's still just as real, but now we see meaning. Now we understand that there's something far beyond what we can see. Now we realize that what he's been telling us in his word is true, and it's far better to live according to that reality than if I take the glasses off and try to do it myself. This divine magic changes everything. It is the perspective of one who has been dwelt by the Holy Spirit, who trusts God and God alone. When we put on these glasses, it causes us to respond differently to our world. Instead of living for gain here and now, instead of trying to get and find fulfillment in this dark place, we look to the one who is real and ultimately the king of every realm, even the one that we're living in right now. And we worship him. Our life changes. We repent of our sinful actions. Those who, for the real king who is really ruling, we follow him. We call on him for help as we try to live in this world, in this realm. And we can rightly now enjoy some of the beautiful things in this darkened place. Food, drink, work. 
Now, as Ecclesiastes will show us, there's even much more than that. We rightly see with these glasses what they are. They are not gain. They are simply gifts from God. Uh, David Gibson is the guy that I, I said, he, he wrote that little book called Living Life Backwards. That's probably one of the, the biggest things I remember is so helpful. What God has given to us is not gain. It's not to be held on to. They are gifts to be enjoyed. You cannot have that perspective. You cannot think that if you don't believe in God and you don't trust him and believe his word to the point that you would go after what he says and do all that he has called us to do. If you look at this verse again here, we're going to see that Kohel is telling us the only one who can gain is the one who pleases God. If you look at this verse, take a look, you'll see that the sinner, the one who does not please God, the one who does not acknowledge God, will just go on gathering and collecting and trying to gain here in this life without ever finding satisfaction or any sort of lasting significance. Life is his life will be hevel, pointless. It will end in destruction. There is no point. Vanity. It doesn't matter. So I'll ask then, where does this leave us? If the Bible is true, and we believe this, then there's a really simple understanding. You and I must please God. We must be ones who understand him and, and fear him and him alone and, and love him for who he says and, and living now according to that truth. Thus, all the, the earthly joys that we experience, we can rightly enjoy them and let them go for whatever it is. I don't care what it is, guys. I don't care if you're in your youth and you're able to do incredible things in, in sports and in work and all kinds of cool stuff. Eventually, you're going to get old. It'll all go away. I don't care if you have tons of possessions and wealth, it will all go away. But if we can put on the glasses, the truth, and see what's going on, and we recognize that these are gifts to use and to obey our King, and thus our lives are full of meaning and joy, now we have wisdom and knowledge and joy. Thus, brothers and sisters, don't chase after the stupidity of the world. It will not be gained to you. I can tell you that. Probably most of you can say you watch other people and see how unhappy they are. But the Bible shows us so clearly that we can take those things and rightly understand them and be glad to let them go because there's something far greater than what we're experiencing right now. And if we are to please God, how in the world do we do that if we've been so sinful? All right, that's another reality, right? Let me give you Hebrews 11.6. It says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let us seek him. Let us draw near to him. Brothers and sisters, trust him. Don't fool around this world. I don't know what thing you're struggling with, but most of the things that we struggle sinfully with is because we hold on to the world in some way. Don't do it. It will only cause harm, vexation, sorrow. It will be grievous to you. Only can God give us an ultimate fulfillment. The answer, as we see here, is trusting Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Yeah, it is to believe in him and put those glasses on that result in obedience and a life of faith and joy in what he's given to us. And from this vantage point, it's clear that trusting Christ is the answer to gaining real happiness and joy and meaning. 
This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3, right? I mean, come on, we know this already. Listen to this verse. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Who cares about that stuff? In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That, so that, here we go. By any means possible, I may attain, or I can say gain, the resurrection from the dead. That is unbelievable. There's something past your death, and he shows us how to get it. There is true gain, and it is in Christ and Christ alone. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here is the meaning of life. Forsake our worldly pursuits. Stop looking for gain here and pursue knowing Christ. It will be this perspective in the here and now that will help us with the reward of our resurrection in Christ alone. We praise God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we need you. We thank you for your grace to show us this through your word, to have Kohelet go up and down the whole gamut and spectrum of understanding what's going on and still coming up empty, except for the grace of God that tells us that the one who pleases him will be given knowledge and wisdom and joy. Lord, you help us to believe. Give us, increase our faith, Lord. Give us grace that we might trust you and you alone to stop living as though this world was all there was and rather look to eternity. We thank you for drink. We thank you for the joy of good work and, and all number of things that you've given to us. May we have a loose grip so that we might know and enjoy you forever. We look forward now to our time together as we gather for your body and blood. May you bless us in this as well. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.